Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Well, today you're listening to something a little different, and I don't mean my cold. It's a roundtable conversation with Ezra Klein and Jane Coaston, two other hosts in the Times Opinion family. Jane's show is The Argument, and Ezra's show is named after him, The Ezra Klein Show. Check them out after you've listened to this episode and the entire Sway catalog. Take it away, Ezra. Jane, Kara, hello. Hello. Hey, how you doing? How are you feeling, Kara? I hear you're a little froggy over there. I'm a little froggy. It's really bad because I've got 103 interviews to do in the next two days. So it'll be fine. <laughs> Too much screaming at the kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and probably they're bringing all the germs. I've been getting sick now that, that people are doing stuff. My son keeps coming home with a snotty nose. Yes. We got a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about the media. We're going to talk about Facebook and to talk about all kinds of different things. But I want to begin where I live in California where the recall effort just got stomped into the ground. Gavin Newsom won by about 27 points, and he won by that much in part because the Republicans, to the extent they united around anybody, united around like <laughs> the most terrifying possible candidate to most Californians. Jane, when we worked at Vox, you did a great piece about the California Republican Party and what it had become, and I thought about that piece a lot over the past couple of weeks. So I'm curious how you read the Republicans in this election and like what California Republicans are. So as I wrote back in 2018 in this piece, the California Republican Party is largely an entity that exists to produce conservative slash anti-liberal thought in other places. Like the degree to which California conservatives have largely given up on California, as evidenced by, I think, running a conservative radio host who has said many conservative radio host things instead of someone who is purely going to be aimed at Gavin Newsom. I think it's evidence of that. One of the things I found interesting about this is that this election or this recall potentially could have been successful if Democrats were caught napping and Republicans could coalesce around someone who was like, I'm not Gavin Newsom. I will never go to French laundry while you can't go to things. I will never do these things that appear to annoy you. Instead, they went with a conservative radio host and Larry Elder, who very much started out by saying that Joe Biden won the election and then backtracked because that's what you have to do in a conservative media ecosystem right now. Not in California, in conservative radio. It's interesting how this was where the nationalization of politics really bit back for Republicans because this became a race about how Larry Elder was going to get rid of all COVID-related mandates, and he was going to like discourage vaccination. Whether or not he would have, it just became this nationalized race, and it became about him, not about Gavin Newsom. And it was very easy to say, like, Larry Elder is basically Trump. He invited Trump into this race, and if Californians aren't that thrilled about Gavin Newsom, they are especially not that thrilled about Donald Trump. 
You know what surprised me, Kara, was that none of the super rich, super cranky, super I can do anything better than anybody else billionaires out in Silicon Valley put themselves on the ballot. There had been talk of that. Um, They are filled with criticisms of how Democrats run California. And I thought that was a kind of like from the side, a little bit independent candidacy that could have been pretty dangerous to Newsom. Sure. I'm curious how you read the absence of any of them in the final options. Well, they don't like to be inconvenienced, right? That's the whole thing. (laughs) But I thought Chamath Palihapitiya, he's a big investor, former Facebook executive, might have run. He sort of teased it, but then said no. And I did a Q&A with him in the Times about what happened. But, you know, they just like to get on Twitter and be like huffy. And then they were leaving California. I'm like, just leave. Just leave. Goodbye. See you later. What's interesting is there are a couple of things um, what Jane was talking about is, look, California is not in the worst shape, right? There's a budget surplus. COVID rates right now are declining rather right. precipitously. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has huge problems with homelessness, et cetera. But that was way before COVID and will continue for a long, long time. And I think in general, people are not necessarily a French laundry aside, which I thought was a real mistake on Newsom's part since he's been so tough on COVID stuff. I think people are pretty okay with him. They don't necessarily love him, you know, right. but they don't dislike him. And that's what I think is interesting. Yeah, there's this glut in conservative media of why I'm leaving California stories yeah, whatever, and ya. why everyone's moving to Miami or Austin or something. Yeah. But I think that there's an idea that that is going to turn into a political movement of sorts. It's like, don't let the door hit you. Don't let the excellent produce hit you on the way out. Just go. <laughs> you made all your money here. California gave you all kinds of opportunity. Kick it in the teeth and leave. I think what's interesting about Newsom, that speech he gave, I don't know, Ezra, what you thought of it. I thought it was quite graceful given he could have kicked them back in the teeth. And he's been a big supporter of tech and has not, like a lot of California politicians, has kind of let them roll all over everybody, essentially. So I'm just curious what you imagine that speech was about. I think Newsom understands that even being threatened with a serious recall campaign does not mean you're in the strongest position. And so he's not trying to be a factional governor. He's trying to reestablish himself with a pretty stunning victory here as a governor who can credibly represent California. You don't want to be the guy who squeaked through. And to his credit, he in the end wasn't. But I did a piece right before the recall actually happened where I chatted with him for it. But before I chatted with him, what I'd been doing was running through the Democrats' record in California. And particularly in the last 18 months, the amount of actual legislating they have done is astonishing. I mean, they passed a universal transitionary kindergarten program, so basically an entire new grade of school for four-year-olds. They put $12 billion into homelessness. We'll see what comes of it, but we don't see an investment like that anywhere else in the country. They just signed right after the recall. They passed before through the legislature, but Newsom signed right after a series of bills on housing that, among other things, end single-family zoning in California. There's this huge list, and this goes, I think, to your point, Kara. Newsom wants to be seen and wants to be understood as one of the great governors, one of the transformational governors of California. And what he somehow needs to do is get himself out of the way so the record can actually speak and also be implemented because getting all this policy done, particularly during a period of COVID, is going to be very, very, very difficult. But I think on some level, he gets that. And so the question that he's sort of asking is, can he just get 
Californians to hold on long enough such that the easing of COVID can really be felt at the same time that the spending down of the surplus that they are tossing around like Oprah money now begins to reverberate in the lives of everyday Californians. If he can get to the other side of that without overly polarizing himself, he has a possibility to look in the long run like a great governor. I'm curious, how does the elitism, I think that is his real problem. He looks elite. Yep. He sounds elite. Everything about him is like elite liberal, although I don't think he's quite as liberal as people make him out to be, right? So that's his big, scary weakness, I would say. I wrote this in the beginning of the piece. I think that Newsom is fascinating because the reality of his politics is an inversion of his reputation. Newsom looks to people like a guy who's all style and no substance. He's got this like super coiffed hair. He looks like the guy you would cast to play a slippery politician in a movie. Yeah. He had this very tabloidy personal life, particularly back when he was in San Francisco. He makes these terrible mistakes like French Laundry. And Kimberly Guilfoyle, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, and Guilfoyle. But the truth of Newsom is it it's like perfectly the inverse. He is a stylistically very weak politician who's constantly misjudging situations and substantively a pretty good one who's passed a lot of good policy and like really does understand a lot of the issues California is facing, can give you chapter and verse on a lot of the things that they're working through the legislature. Not a perfect governor by any means, but I think this is like the essential paradox of Newsom. I think I wrote it this way, that he's a... He's like an earnest nerd who presents as a slick jock, and he's never found a way to out-communicate that. I once told him his skin was just too nice. I know it sounds terrible and <laughs> completely locust. He was like, why do you think people don't believe me? I'm like, you're too handsome. Let me ask Jane one thing before we move off of Newsom, which is one of the things you're hearing from Newsom's team, from Democrats, is that running on tough covid regulations was actually a huge winner for them. Even if you look nationally right now, vaccine mandates poll really well. Most people are vaccinated and they want other people to be vaccinated. And so the one thing I'm hearing Democrats consider extracting out of the recall campaign is really seeing possibly tough COVID regulations as something that could help them politically over the next year, even into the the midterms when that happens. Do you think there's something to that? I mean, I think it goes to maybe I'm just going to have to like do a giant. The nationalization of politics is generally bad because I do think it's on a state by state basis. Like, for instance, there's a race going on right now in Virginia. I'm in Washington, D.C., so Virginia's it's over there somewhere right now. Youngkin, who's the Republican candidate, is getting hit really hard on being close to Trump. The Virginia Democrats are going really hard on covid related stuff. But I also think like if you are trying to win down ballot races or you're trying to win in more purple states because increasingly Virginia is a blue state until proven otherwise. I think that that won't work. I do agree, though, that one of the challenges we've had is that we have heard a lot about extremely loud people coming to school board meetings and screaming about masks, but the vast majority of people are not like that. The challenge will be can you build a winning coalition on being tougher on COVID? I mean, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I think it'll depend on where you are. So speaking of nationalizing everything, Jane, uh, I think you want to talk a bit about the media. I do. And I'm annoyed. I'm incredibly annoyed. And I need to be told whether or not my annoyance is justified because I want to talk about how the media reports on and criticizes other media This is one of those moments in which I recognize that I am a part of the media. I am a part of the problem. It's media all the way down. It really is. Now, you may have seen Fox News posted a story about media frets over too many white Emmy winners. 
And then there was a dust-up between Politico and a Washington Post columnist that then Fox News reported on ad nauseum. There's a lot of reporting on people writing on Substack and just a lot of people going back and forth and back and forth about the media. And it is driving me absolutely insane. You mean the people on Substack? The hot take hacks, that's what I call them. Some of them are, and some of them are just on Substack. But I mean, even the conversation about Substack is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, why is it seeming to overtake talking about the news that is actually happening? Because it scares the media. Because Substack scares media companies. It scares media people. There's also a bunch of FOMO. Like, should I be on Substack earning a million dollars? Like, which you won't. Right. Um, I think that's totally normal, don't you think? It's like Hollywood right now obsessing over streaming. But that counts, actually. I want to cut two different kinds of media takes here aside. Because I don't think anybody's having a Substack conversation except like 50 people on Twitter and Substack. Like, that mm-hmm. does not strike me as something that is like erupted into wider consciousness. Exactly. So we should stop doing it. Well, I'm not talking about it. Uh, I said that specifically so I wouldn't have to talk about it for the rest of this episode. Amazing. Perfect. Um, I'm not going to be part of the problem. I'm going to be the change I seek to see in the world. (laughs) I like a lot of Substacks. I think it's all fine. This is a place where I'm going to speak up for the right-wing critique of things. Not that the media is all liberal and fake news and everything, but something the right has understood for a very long time is it the media as an institution is really important in a way the media as an institution does not want to admit. The media as an institution is a super important political actor, who we choose to cover, how we cover, what stories, to the point you were just making, Jane, we choose. Those are incredibly important. And because the media wants to pretend that it is some kind of unbiased mirror to the world, not those of us who are in the opinion section, but elsewhere in the world, the media has a lot of trouble explaining the role it is playing and the frameworks through which it is trying to play that role well. And so it falls to people outside of it who feel ill-served by it to make a big issue out of it. But then the problem is there is no one media anymore. I mean, if there ever was, but there really is not now. And then social media is not a media in the way that like a, a network news channel is. And so I would like to say, I think media criticism is very worth doing. I just think we need way better media criticism because these little gossipy flare-ups, they're trading on deep feelings people have that the media is important and it doesn't represent them, but it is not able to get at that real conversation that is a worthwhile one in my view. But they do, but people do not trust the media. You know, I don't know how many relatives you have, depending on where, but I often get relatives saying, I don't trust the media and I'm in the media. I've even had my mom... I did an interview with Hillary Clinton, and she called me up and she said, you can't believe what Hillary Clinton just said. And she then repeated back to me via the Fox filter. And I was like, no, no, that's not what she said. And she goes, oh, that's your opinion. And I was like, no, she talked to me. Like, I was the one who did the... (laughs) And it was, like, astonishing. And then the media, which is so manifestly insecure, then seizes upon it and gets into a big cycle of being defensive. When you should just, like like every other industry, some of us suck, some of us doesn't. When we make mistakes, we try to admit it. The media also is so insecure that they can't help but feel bad that people don't like them. I also do think, like, when people are like, oh, I don't trust the media, that implicitly says to me, like, I trust some media, I just don't trust you. It's just like, you know, you've got your media and I've got my media and our mediums hate each other and then they fight. And I get concerned sometimes that the overemphasis on the media turns into a moment in which I'm like, I would also be 
distrustful of institutions that seem to mostly discuss themselves and people like them. See, unlike Ezra, I think social media has ruined the media, like, because everybody can say something. You don't know where the sourcing is sometimes. It's taken apart the already tenuous relationship media had with its users and has blown it wide open. And so everybody has a voice. Everyone's screaming past each other. And so the power of media, especially institutions like the New York Times and other places, has just going to be diminished, even if a lot of important people do pay attention to it. Do you think, though, that this is something, because when we're thinking about social media, the entity that I think about is Twitter, but most people, most journalists are on Twitter. Most people in general are not. Facebook is where they are. Yes. Yeah. But Twitter drives the entire media because all the journalists are there. Yes. I mean, we're right. going to talk about Facebook in a minute. I have said this forever. I think the biggest problem in the direct media is the media's intense reliance and presence in Twitter. Yeah. We're yes. all talking to each other. And it's not just to the point Kara was making. Yes, everybody has a voice and some people voice are terrible and, and they've got big followings. But also... The media tweets like nobody is watching. That is a good line. And look, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that people were too constrained in the media for a long time. But I log on to Twitter and I always think to myself, you know, everybody can read this, right? People act on Twitter in a way that is not well designed to increase trust in them or their institutions. And then they turn like, why does nobody like or trust me anymore? I am often texting media people at night saying, get off, put it down. Put it, you're not a professional. You're crashing your you're car like the Twitter, into the, the wall. The, the Twitter guardian angel. I do it all the time. I'm like, put it down. I'm a professional. Put it down. The questions around retirement have gotten... Hiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So, Kara, the Wall Street Journal has been publishing this series called The Facebook Files. And to sum up a few of the major findings, Facebook lied about equal application of standards. They have what's basically a VIP pass exempting celebrities and, and notable people 
from some rules, maybe not all. They withheld research about the negative mental health impact of Instagram, especially on teen girls. And despite promises to the contrary, Facebook was a major source of misinformation about the pandemic and the vaccine. So I'm curious what you think of all this. Oh, it goes on, doesn't it? The beat goes on. Nick Clegg, who's the head of global affairs, had a reaction to it, which was sort of a non-reaction reaction or one of those non-denial, denial kind of things where he said, it's complex. It's all true, but how dare you? Well, no, I don't know quite what he said. He just got on there. He said, it's complex and we're not evil. And I was like, okay, we didn't think either of these things were not true. I think what was powerful about the journal pieces and the Times has done great pieces too, and a lot of people have, Casey Newton, many others, is that it's just more proof of what we already thought. As it builds, it sort of gives us a picture of something we already know about them, but adds more data and more documentation to what's happening in there, which is, I think, more of a hot mess than other people do. I don't think it's calculated. I think it's sloppy. I think the architecture is rotten. Um, And I'm not sure it's fixable the way it's set up, you know, especially the constant shifting of priorities. And lastly, that everything rises and falls with Mark Zuckerberg. And he is completely incapable of doing this. The wisest person in the world couldn't do this job. And he, I am sorry to say, is not the wisest person in the world. If you've got a kind of eh feeling about Facebook two months ago, what has been learned that should change that in any way? I think some of this data about girls, young girls, and the toxicity of Instagram for it. And, you know, Facebook's working on, oh my God, Instagram for kids. Like, no, stop right now. It was a lot of data around it and some of the research that Facebook did about itself, which is good. That's great to look at yourself, but then didn't act upon as some people in the company thought. And that's why you're getting all these documents because people inside the company are just tossing documents over the wall because they're tired of it, I suspect. I think it just continued to show in a wide range of areas, whether it was how celebrities and famous people are treated, the impact on kids, the difficulty of managing misinformation on the platform, and the fact that one person makes all the decisions. It's the same through line, though, is that this place is impossible to manage because it's so big and so powerful. And, like, the challenge we have is that every single time Facebook has gone up before congressional hearings— all that has been displayed is that members of Congress have no idea what Facebook is true. or how it works. That's not true. The recent David Cicilline ones and his report was excellent, was fantastic, actually. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this is that Facebook continues to fend off this stuff because we're so disorganized. Look over what's going on in China. They're taking over tech right now. They've decided it's too powerful and they're just taking over the place. I think one of the problems politically is that Facebook knows our political system is chaotic in normal times, and now it's really chaotic. They've hired a mess of lobbyists and PR people and everyone else to stave off what's inevitable. And so it just goes on. And and by the way, shareholders are rewarding them quite a lot still, no matter what. One of the problems with them, it always seems to me, is that they're running something that is on the scale now of a global governance system or a religion, maybe. I mean, things don't operate on that multi-billion person scale. And one of the repeated revelations of the journal reporting, but also all reporting, and also if you just look at what is happening on Facebook for 20 minutes, is that they don't have policies that are equally and fairly applied. 
And of course they don't. For the most part, things at that scale very rarely do. But what things at that scale tend to have is some reason to believe in the legitimacy of the outcome. So if you are the U.S. government, in theory, there are elections and a whole system of government, and, and there's representation, right? There's representation. And if you're the Catholic Church, like in theory, the Pope is, the, is God's representative on earth, so there's at least divine authority. And the problem I see with what Facebook has been trying to do, one, one place I will give them a little bit of credit is that for years, in a way, you don't see in that many companies, they're trying to be creative with how to constrain themselves at least a little bit. They tried to create this Facebook Supreme Court style situation. They, you know, do try to create policies and try to create boards and so on. They're trying to create within it a kind of thing that looks almost like a government. But my my critique of them is always they are doing so without representation. Like it's all a bit of a shell game because in the end, it's only Mark Zuckerberg there with his super shares who has true power over the situation. They're not trying to create a situation where, you know, the Facebook users can vote on what the policy should be and how they should be applied, nothing. And so in the end, it's just them running something that is too big for any just them to be legitimate doing. I think what they're doing is hand-waving with all that stuff. They don't mean it. They don't. They, they meant it. Mark Zuckerberg could be fired like most other CEOs in this country or anywhere else. Secondly, if they have this much power and refuse to be transparent, all this stuff around research, that just says to you they're just hand-waving at everybody. And until Mark Zuckerberg can be fired or until they can be sued, nothing's going to happen here. And their shares go up. Are you kidding? Nobody's going to change this, this situation, even if it has a deleterious effect on people. And then they can say, oh, you know what? We didn't cause January 6th. Well, that's not what we're saying. We're saying your tools in the hands of malevolent players are super dangerous, but we have no power over them whatsoever. And that's going to be the problem. Even if they're the nicest people in the world, you know, which they try. We're not a terrible people. Stop impugning our... No one's saying they're Thanos. Some people are. That's not true. But what we're saying is you are imperfect people with an imperfect platform, and you're making decisions that affect people rather significantly on very serious issues like vaccinations and getting people into a state of rage almost constantly. That's the real problem is this addiction, rage, self-esteem circle that affects the psyche of people. Especially because the algorithms are encouraging this. I really recommend, um, we'll link it in our show notes, but the research that Instagram is well aware of the mental health impact that Instagram can have on teen girls and on teen boys, and it's well aware of this. Facebook has publicly played down the app's negative impacts. They haven't made the research available. And I think that that's something where you have a company that is being duplicitous. It is being duplicitous because it can be, because it assumes that you will eventually move on. There was a memo that was by Facebook Vice President Andrew Bosworth who uh, said that maybe it costs a life by exposing someone to bullies, may when someone dies in a terrorist attack coordinated on our tools, and still we connect people. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. That's the, It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But I, I'm curious, Ezra, as to your thoughts on this, as someone who's been thinking about the intersection of this industry with politics, the political solutions, and what this means for our polarization problem, a thing I hear you wrote a book about. Uh, I did. I did. This is just hard. Um, let me just, I'll quickly make the argument from Facebook's perspective so, so somebody has, which is they are running a multi-billion person platform. 
and you will have all the good and the bad of humanity on it. You will have all of the bullying and also people getting together to raise money for kidneys. And you'll have also just a lot of banal stuff where people are saying, you know, did you did you see the thing that happened on, on TV last night? I think a lot of this is a dodge because they are amplifying people's emotions to highly engaging material. And so it's like you take human interactions and you like run them through an emotion amplification machine. And I don't think that's healthy, but that's their view of it. And to the point about political solutions, to the extent there are any, these are hard. I mean, I see in politics people often trying to fit the problem of social media into a box that I don't think is quite the right one. So we have recognized approaches to things like antitrust. Facebook should not have been allowed to buy Instagram. I think now that is like looked back on as a pretty clear mistake. But that doesn't mean that if they didn't buy Instagram, you would not have the problem of the company Instagram, which is now a gigantic company and is running itself in a way that is bad for many teens. Because, of course, having young people live their lives on a platform that is seeing curated photos of their friends and how much more fun everybody else is having and how they look and so on is going to be bad for you. Like, of course, it's going to be bad for you. And so there is a a broad problem here of what if society is just choosing to spend a lot of time on technologies that for some value of we, some of we don't think are good. And the thing I will sometimes hear from Facebook people, and Kara, I'm sure you hear this more than I do, is, you know what? Candy bars aren't good for you either. And white bread isn't good for you either. And that the, the tricky thing here is you are making value judgments on, on what is okay for people. There are things in society we don't allow people to do, like certain kinds of drugs and buy Scorpion missile launchers. But mostly we say, if you want to buy things that are bad for you to eat or you want to buy alcohol and you're over 21, even though you might be an alcoholic, we let you do it. And Facebook has a lot of those and Instagram has a lot of those dimensions in addition to, of course, other dimensions that are fine. Politics doesn't have a good language for that. There's no laws. This is as if you built a city and everybody pays you rent by way of their data, right? So you you live in the city. You don't get police. You don't get water. You don't get stop signs. You don't get fire people. You don't get regular food. You're just on your own and it's the purge. And then they write, they have the audacity to write you, well, it's a free country. And so at some point they've got to put in speed limits They've got to put in, you know, warning labels. If they want to play like this, then let's have some real teeth behind it. And then people can make their decision. You know, but they won't do that because they know that our country, unlike China or some other places, are not going to crack down on them. Now in other countries, India and just now in Russia, you just saw that just happen. They crack down. They understand the power of this thing. Even if they're authoritarians, they get it. And so... They rely on us being the most dysfunctional democracy so that they can continue to do what they want and then try to say that they're virtuous. They're not virtuous. They're just not. I do, I do not feel good about the terms crackdown and comparisons. Like, I, I think that that's the complicated thing here is that, like, the Russian government could care less about the impact that these outlets are having on young women and on bullying. That was for political purposes. And I think that that's something when you hear from some on the right who are very much about like, oh, we need to crack down those platforms. Their issue is that sometimes if you say something mean about Donald Trump or lie about vaccines, you might get your post removed and they're mad about that. So I think that that's the thing that that concerns me here is that the incentives behind how we would think about a regulatory environment are so different depending on the politics of the people. Like there's a lot of talk about antitrust with relation to, I think there was a House committee that essentially ruled 
that Facebook needs to be broken up and that these entities are too big. But again, like, I don't know. I'm concerned. It's very hard to break them up. The way they've constructed it is the thing. What do you break up precisely? Well, and even if you do break it up, do the things you've broken up now just have more incentive to compete in even more destructive ways for market share yeah. because they can't cross-subsidize from the thing. This is my only point on regulating these things, which I think everybody knows I'm, I'm pretty for, is that you have to define which problem you're trying to deal with at any given time very tightly. And you might need to do a lot of different things. The, the issue for anti-competitive practices by Facebook or by Amazon might be very different. The solutions for that issue might be very different than solutions for we think Instagram is bad for kids, right? Like those are two separate problems and you could solve one without solving the other. But currently we are solving neither. I think that is a good place to to come to a close here. So we're going to do a recommendations round, a book, a movie, a TV show, some good you like. I see you're you're doing constant monitoring, glucose monitoring in your newsletter now, Kara. <laughs> yeah, some yes, weird gadget, um, wh- wh- whatever you want. Jane, we'll start yeah, with I'm you. I'm downing honey right now. I'm sure my glucose is off the <laughs> charts right this second. I want to recommend two books that I'm reading simultaneously because one is an upper and one is a downer. The downer is Anthony Beevor's The Fall of Berlin, 1945, which is fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It is also devastating about the Eastern Front of the Second World War, which is something I knew a lot about. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on that subject, and yet somehow there are things that I read here and that I need to take a long, soothing walk to get over having read. But I'm also reading Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law by the great science writer Mary Roach, which deals with things like what do you do when elephants kill people? And how do you deal with killer trees or bears or cougars, which I assume are issues that you have in California. I don't know. It's wild out there. But both books are great. Read them simultaneously because it really helps balance it out. It's like having kale and ice cream, but good together. Kara? I think, you know, you just talked about continuous glucose monitoring. I'm super interested in stuff like that, this sort of quantified self, is it selfie, I guess you call it. I would recommend Michael Pollan's latest book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. I think anything he writes is really interesting. This is about opium, coffee, and um, mescaline, essentially. And I think it's really interesting because I've been interviewing a lot of people lately about these trials around the use of psychotropic drugs in PTSD and depression. And you could all laugh, haha, I'm on a trip. But some of this stuff has incredible promise and is moving through, including up to and including LSD and things like that. And I'll recommend actually just some straight up fiction, nothing too heavy. I've been into a fantasy series. It's called a, it's Silk Punk. So it's like very Asian inflected by Ken Liu called The Dandelion Dynasty. Um, Ken Liu is super interesting. He's won a bunch of awards for for short fiction. He's the translator of two of the Three Body Problem series books. Um, but these books are just really cool. If you're if you're into a good story that is both like highly about science and 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 gods, but also just about how governance would work in a somewhat feudal society and how a revolution would work. I loved it. The first one is called The Grace of Kings. The second one um, is also great. And the third one has just come out. But but you should begin with The Grace of Kings. And the whole series is called The Dandelion Dynasty by Ken Liu. Well, Jane, Kara, thank you all so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Phoebe Lett, Andy Galvin, and Roger Karma. It was edited by Stephanie Joyce, Alison Bruzek, and Naima Raza. 
Engineering, music, and sound design by Isaac Jones and Sonia Herrero. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Kristen Lynn. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks to Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Blake Nishik. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with a fresh episode of Sway You Won't Want to Miss. In the meantime, I want to thank Jane and Ezra for chatting with me. And I strongly suggest you go follow their shows, The Argument and The Ezra Klein Show. See you next week. Smart Wool makes merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, explore, and thrive outside with every thread they knit and every step you take. And the right comfort can keep you outside, so you can do all the things you live for longer. Get 15% off your first order on SmartWool.com and get out there. SmartWool. Go far. Feel good.